This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. This is Mental Health Moments, the podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers and sharing your stories. Brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe, and brought to you by 105.9 The Region. As always, before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you folks know that if you're listening to Discovery, the wonderful radio show for podcasts, uh, including this one, Mental Health Moments, as well as the new music podcast, Millennial Balance, and some of our wonderful clients, is available on all major podcast platforms. Check it out. Grief, anger, despair, and guilt are just some of the emotions that we as humans experience when uh, a loved one passes away. And joining me today to talk more about this particular topic is a radio icon turned author, public speaker, and podcast host, Aaron Davis. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. It is a pleasure to be with you and with your audience today. Thank you for joining all of us and uh, and I hope that the weekend is going well. This is uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Now, Aaron, I wanted to start with your story because, frankly, it's the main caveat as to why we are coming together, the main reason we're coming together. So for those who are unfamiliar or perhaps even too young to remember, uh, your lovely and talented daughter, Lauren, passed away unexpectedly at the age of 24. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I wanted to take the opportunity. Can you tell me a little bit about Lauren? I'd like to get to know her a bit. Thank you. Thank you. And there were a lot of listeners to our radio station in Toronto who who did feel like they knew her. So if I was going to sum up her awesomeness of 24 years, how would I say she was uh, she was born kind of in the media spotlight. I did three months at home after having her. I did my part of the morning show from home. And this was before Phil, before everybody was, you know, could do a podcast from their closet. It was really quite a thing. And uh, and then they would hear Lauren gurgling on the air with me. And I wasn't gurgling. She was. Um, and then every Christmas Eve at Aaron's, there was a show we did and people got a chance to hear her grow. And uh, we tried to dissuade her uh, from getting into radio, but her dad came from radio. I was, of course. And uh, and as soon as she graduated high school, she went straight to Algonquin College in Ottawa. And then after a year there, she was plucked out by Ottawa's News Talk leader and was doing radio news there. And before her maternity leave in 2015, she was anchoring the national news broadcast herself. I mean, she she came by so much of it um, naturally, but she had an immense amount of talent. She was a, a very level-headed and and funny and beautiful, talented. She sang a uh, young woman and uh, and she was our only child. She was a light and love of Rob's in my life, our limited edition. But uh, as I say in Morning Has Broken, just how limited we were, we were soon to find out. I'm glad um, that we got to know Lauren a little bit here. And you mentioned something there that I wanted to pick out. Uh, she went on maternity leave and eventually uh, gave birth to your uh, grandchild. Can you try and describe your grandchild and something that I wanted to know on a personal level? Do you see Lauren yeah. in them? Uh, that is a very good question, Phil. And one that we all have different answers to. Uh, yeah, Colin was born October 11th, uh, 2014, and Lauren died uh, the following May. And uh, it was, we believe, a drug that she was taking to help her to breastfeed that stopped her heart. Colin, so it was on the day that he turned seven months old and the morning after her first Mother's Day that she simply did not wake up. 
So about Colin, he is a wonderful child. He now lives out in BC, about a six minute drive from us. His dad and his his new mom and uh, his new baby sister they all they all live very close to us, and we're so grateful. Colin's dad and uh, Lauren's dad, my husband Rob, um, they both see so much Lauren in him. But I think I kind of I put filters on. And I think it's just one of the ways that I protect myself from, you know, the dagger in the heart that is losing your child. Um, I choose to see Colin as his own personality, this wonderful statistic spewing kid who loves everything about baseball and can tell you what the Boston Red Sox were first called and when they were formed and all this kind of stuff. I prefer to see Colin as he is. That's not to say anyone who sees Lauren in him is doing him a disservice. I think it's a tremendous way to honor Lauren's legacy. But uh, yeah, I, I think it is, Phil, one of my ways of protecting myself. No, and, and that makes perfect sense to me, because as you were describing that, as you were prefacing that you don't see Lauren in him, it it certainly made a lot of sense that your heart, your brain is trying to protect you, that if you do, in fact, see Lauren in him, when you look at him, that it kind of reminds you of that hurt again. So it makes perfect sense to me. Well, I'm glad because I'm sure that a psychiatrist would have a field day with it. But, you know, who's got time for that? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, well, we'll get into the the nuts and bolts of our conversation here. There's the old saying that time heals all wounds. And in your experience through everything that you've been through, in particular with the loss of Lauren, do you think that that's true or do you or am I oversimplifying things by saying it gets easier with time? It's just no blanket statement. I would agree with you. I'd agree with what you say about it, Phil, because um, for me and for Rob, the, the passage of time has made it a little easier. It. Grief and loss are things you only get through, you never get over. God forbid somebody says, you know, isn't it time you started dating again? Your husband or boyfriend's been gone for two years, or why didn't you get rid of that? Or it's time to move on. Or is she still sad about that? People who don't experience this don't realize that there are no timelines. Time does not exist in grief, especially in the early going days and months and years. But for me, for us, Time has proved a healer. And it comes to a point where the author and writer, she's amazing, Anne Lamott, that's Anne with an E and Lamott, compares it to dancing again. Your heart breaks open and it will never heal. But this is also the good part because you will dance again, but with a limp. And to me, that is what coming through the grieving process and living with this scarred heart really does mean it is dancing with a limp. And that's really, I think, the best outcome that we can hope for. That's a, a fantastic way of, of putting that, too, because it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, this this scar will be ever present, but you will still be able to do things like dancing and so on. At one point, you, you referenced uh, that, you know, time does make it easier, but it's still a challenge. And part of the reason that I reached out to you was because over the holidays, a friend of mine, uh, Christine Bondo, a wonderful uh, elderly woman that uh, also lost her child unexpectedly, she posted something to the effect of Christmas being an incredible challenge for her because every year she is reminded mm -hmm. that her boy is not there with her and that I put this very much in air quotes that she's alone. Uh, so first... Was, is that the same for yourself and your husband? And secondly, in your opinion and experience, how can we, the individuals, help ease the pain for our friends in those moments? Ah, it's so nice that you ask because, you know, Lisa Marie Presley wrote a piece about grief after losing her son. 
after Benjamin died by suicide. And she wrote it, and it was in People magazine having to do with Grief Awareness Day. And so that was only about six months ago. And Lisa Marie did not make it through her grief. And what she wrote is, you know, check on us. Don't just ask, you know, don't say, what, you know, what, what do you need? Because and someone else said this too, is that when you ask someone, what do you need? You're putting the onus on the person who is broken to come up with something. Oh, I don't know. And make a shopping list. No, just do something kind out of the blue and try not to worry about how it's going to land. Just try and be kind and remember that although your life has moved on, it's been a year since this person has gone or two years or 10 years or 20 years, the loss is still very real. And there is not a day that goes by that the person who has experienced this loss is not thinking of the person they lost. And it's not wallowing or it's not dwelling. It's just, again, a very real part of loss. It becomes your face tattoo. And, you know, you can get a tattoo anywhere and hide it. But this, you know, this is your face tattoo. You see it in the mirror every time you look. You see that loss. You see who you no longer are or the part of you that is missing. And yeah, you can go on, but that limp is there. So when you're asking what can you do, the holidays are brutal. From all of December, fell right till I took the bloody tree down. The year before our last was the first tree we had put up since Lauren died. And we didn't do it for us. We did it for her son and his family. Because, you know, you got to suck it up and, and give others what they need at the holidays. It's not about you. But it's awful. It's terrible. I hate it because it is such a time of memories. And people will say, well, why don't you focus on the good times? Well, yes, of course you do. But the sweetness of those times makes the bitterness just in sharper focus. So yeah, the holidays are bad <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell. But what you can do is call and ask. And, and instead of saying, what do you need? Just say, how are you today? And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm bringing over a chicken pot pie or I'm picking up some Swiss chalet or, you know, insert your sponsor here, Phil, I understand. But you know what I mean? Um, just do something for someone that maybe they don't expect, but really does show that you're thinking of them. Even if it's seven and a half years after their loved one died, it doesn't matter. It's such a challenge because it, from the outside looking in, from my perspective, who hasn't dealt with that kind of loss, obviously I've I've lost loved ones and I can empathize with with unimaginable pain that the likes of yourself and my friend Christine here have experienced. But mm -hmm. in this particular scenario, I I questioned if it was almost better to not say anything, to allow this person to deal with grief in however they need to deal with it. Is Do you think that that's kind of the wrong approach and that we should be putting that aside and for sure reaching out and, and even if they're not receptive, making sure that they know that you're there for them? Yes, yes. And there is no wrong. I wouldn't say a right or wrong because the person, Christine, in your case or or whoever one is talking about, people would say to me, I didn't know if I should write to you or I didn't know if, if I should mention Lauren or whatever. I didn't want to hurt you. And it's like, no, no, no. Every time you mention this person, it brings her to life for a moment. And for me, it's not like, oh, you just reminded me that my daughter died. <laughs> no, again, it's my face tattoo. I know she's gone. And in fact, in the book, In Morning Has Broken, I wrote a poem called Say Her Name because of a certain circumstance where her name should have been brought up and nobody knew whether to or whatever. It's like, no, I'm already shattered. What you're doing is, is a kindness. Now, this will depend on who you're speaking of. Maybe Christine is, you know, she's having a day where she doesn't, She's not thinking about the loss of her son, but 
it's all just in saying, you know, I'm thinking of you today. I just wanted you to know that and hope that your heart isn't too heavy or something like that. And that to me, and again, I can only speak to myself, but that means so much. And please, if I could take this moment for a public service announcement, please watch the platitudes. Never say at least. At least he's no longer in pain. At least she wasn't driving the car when her heart stopped. At least you have a grandson. At least you have your husband. I've heard all of these things in our case. You know what? We are allowed to be grateful about the things that are the gentle, tender mercies about Lauren's death, but we're the ones who have to say them. Don't ever say those words, at least, to someone who is mourning because it's saying, they're there. It's not so bad. It could have been so much worse. Well, hell, we know it could have been worse, Phil. It can always be worse. And there's always someone who has it worse than us. But those words, at least, mm -mm, no. And one other thing is, if you have religious beliefs, don't assume the person you're trying to make feel better has them too. It's like God needed another angel. Really? I'll just pause for a second while you do the imaginary throat punch. But, you know, you hear that kind of stuff. And people mean well. If if you don't have anything to say that you know is going to land well, then maybe it is as the old song goes. You say it best when you say nothing at all. There, there is so much to unpack there. And I appreciate how much you, <laughs> how much information you've put out there, because I, I think about my own experiences when I'm trying to help people. And I for sure have dropped the platitudes of at least this, at least that. Uh, for instance, uh, my uncle passed away over over the summer of an unexpected uh, heart failure. And, you know, all of us collectively were saying at least he's at peace because he was dealing with bipolar and all these different things. And now that you're saying this, it, it makes so much sense that you're you're trying to lessen this problem you're trying to make it a tragedy. little bit this mm-hmm. tragedy and but at the same time you're also reminding the person yeah they're they're gone you wouldn't want to continue to remind someone that their loved one is gone that's abundantly clear they're aware that this situation has happened and and by you saying well at least it, it kind of diminishes what they might be going through no Yes, exactly. It's like giving someone a compliment and then putting the word but after it, they, <laughs> unless it's about their butt. If if you're if you're saying, you know, you did a really great job on that podcast, Phil, but you immediately erase the first part of that sentence because right away your focus goes on that second part. So the at least said, you know, the at least completely cancels what you're saying, unless you are the person who's grieving. And people might disagree with that. It's like, no, I was trying to make them feel better. I get the caring and the compassion that makes people want to, you know, it's like, oh, your dog, at least he lived 16 years. You had him for 16 years. I know, but it wasn't enough. It's just one of those things we do, I think, out of kindness. We don't purposely try and mitigate or or diminish the, the depths of someone's loss. We're trying to diminish their pain. But in doing so, it's like saying, no, you're saying that this didn't matter. And it did. And it's bad enough. It's just bad enough. I know how you feel about platitudes based on our our last exchange there. But I wanted to throw a cliche at you, if you'll allow me. Okay. Or I've always kind of used my friend Christine as the example when dealing with uh, with grief and what have you. And that how much strength she shows by continuing to live her life and you know, showing her granddaughter and how proud she is of her and what have you. And I was telling Christine's story to my tattoo artist and uh, my artist is a mother herself. I, I will get to the cliche in a moment. I, no, uh, I want to know about the tattoo. What is it? Uh, the tattoo is a map of the world on my forearm. Wow, I could put one on my butt. <laughs> there you go. That way, if you ever get lost, you can tell people to look at your butt. As she was tattooing me, I was telling this story just it was a very over the 
or all over the place conversation with lots of uh, philosophical conversations, what have you. And I told this story about Christine and uh, my tattoo artist, whose mom herself emphatically pointed out how strong Christine is for even getting out of bed. And here's where the cliche kicks in. How mm-hmm. do you get out of bed in the morning after something like this? And the the cliche being, is it just living your life to the fullest because that's what our loved one would want? Or how do we handle this kind of despair, the, this pit of awful that I assume is felt almost daily? Yeah, you're right. And um, and may you never know. That's one of my cliches. May you never know. You know, there are people who will say, I couldn't imagine. And again, I say, may you never know. And, and you know, how did you get out of bed in the morning? Well, I'll tell you, after one month, I got back out of bed at the crack of stupid, like your Jim Lang does there on the station. You had to be in at work, you know, before five o'clock. So it gave me a reason to get out of bed, find a reason to get out of bed. Also, I felt like lifting me out of bed on gentle angel hands were not my daughter, but the people who were caring about me and wanted me back on the radio. So the importance of that, and I know how extremely fortunate we are to have had that support, that web of wonderful people who who cared so much about us and about Lauren and about her child and her husband. Find your people. Go to a grief support group. Bereaved Families of Ontario, I had the honor of sitting in on a group meeting a couple of years ago, and just to see these people There's a wonderful saying, Phil, that goes that joy shared is multiplied, grief shared is divided. And when you find your people, the people who know your pain, the people who know how to get out of bed and what to do if they can't and who to call, it can mean the difference between life and death. And you know that so much about mental health is sick, not weak, and being able to say, hey, I need help over here and having that strength of vulnerability to say, I I can't get out of bed. Somebody help me. It's just, it can mean the difference between life and death. So that's my message. It's we're strong because we have to be. We're strong because we don't have a choice. And I'm strong. My husband is strong because we like to envision a conversation at the end of our lives when we meet up with Lauren and she says, okay, mom, dad, what did you do with your lives after I left? And having the answer that will make us proud, that will make her proud as we walk hand in hand to the classroom and get ready for our next our next trip around the sun. That's what we live by, living to make Lauren proud, living to make sure her son has the best life possible and his sister now, too. Before we move on, I just want to say that, you know, I I wholeheartedly believe that uh, the likes of yourself and, and this woman, Christine, that I keep referencing are just incredibly strong human beings. And I I find it so deeply admirable because I I know thinking of my own experiences, my own battles with depression and what have you, it's, it's pretty easy to justify just doing absolutely nothing throughout the day. So thank you for continuing to live your life. Thank you for, for explaining how you do it and why you do it. And that's just wonderful. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And you know, I, I, I'm on antidepressants as well, have been for decades, but and I, you know what? I always felt like a hypocrite because I was so happy and cheerful on the radio. But then, you know, taking my Prozac or whatever it was way back then, why would I judge myself like that? But I'll tell you that, you know, depression and also the illness of addiction. I was 10 years sober. Lauren died and I stayed sober until I actually until I left the radio 
uh, of my own choice, quite quite gratefully, a year and a half after she died. And that's when I said, oh, no more alarm clocks, no more rules, no more having to be, you know, kind of clear minded for the morning. So I started drinking again. And then I ended up going to rehab. So I tell you this only as another step toward vulnerability and saying, I need help. And uh, before I went to rehab, I got my butt into um, one of those meetings. They're everywhere. They are, as uh, as Craig Ferguson, so lovely, the late night host, so p- perfectly put it, they're in the very front of the phone book. That's to give you a hand who it is. And uh, the meetings were the safest, most comforting place I had ever been in. I never felt like I so belonged as in a meeting from, uh, you know, people with enough enough uh, piercings to look like they fell down the stairs carrying a tackle box to old and grizzled truck drivers to young people like myself and professionals and stuff. Everybody in that room had their vulnerability and their disease in common. And so once again, you just you just say, I need help. Absolutely. Um, my dad is a, is a very philosophical human being. And the advice he's given me my entire life is any challenge that seems daunting, any challenge that seems too much is to imagine it as you were eating a metaphorical elephant because you wouldn't eat a real one. Yep. But uh, to yep. eat this metaphorical elephant, it seems like a task. But if you take it one bite at a time, eventually you will get to the end. So, again, great minds think alike that yourself and my father seem to have similar mentalities when it comes to challenging tasks. Well, it is It is just the way it goes. And I love that your dad has a philosophy. I, I think that philosophy is such an important part of survival. And I've just this this year kind of dipped my toes into stoicism, which is a really interesting way of looking at life, too. <laughs> As I said in your introduction, you're um, you're a radio host turned author. And I, I definitely wanted to give you a chance to talk about your book here. It is called Morning Has Broken, Love, Loss and Reclaiming Joy. So tell me about this book and, you know, what's kind of the the elevator pitch of what people can expect when they buy this book. All right. Well, first thing, we are on the elevator. So ding and you ding when I'm done. Okay. Um, Ding. Doors closing. Hi, I wrote a book and it's about grief and coming through it because you never get over it. It's spelt morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And uh, yeah, that was published in 2019. HarperCollins came to me and said, you've got a book in you. And I agreed. There's also an audio version. And it takes us through our lives with our daughter, with a lot of radio in it, but a lot of humor. It's not a really sad book. You won't cry all the way through. I promise you that. It's meant to give people hope. And also to those who don't know loss, which is a wonderful thing not to know, uh, how to deal with those of us who are going through it or are living with it. So I love this book. I'm very proud that it's my legacy and that one day Colin will read it. Ding. Well done. That was, uh, I feel like you've talked about your book once or twice before. Coming from coming from radio, you know that if you've got a minute to do a commercial, you do that commercial in a minute. <laughs> there you go. That was a that was a yeah. live read script if I've ever seen one for sure. <laughs> While you were putting pen to paper for the book, or if you typed it, yeah. I'm not sure, but regardless, we'll we'll stick with the metaphor this time. Did you find it cathartic sure. to, to put that information down on paper, or was it challenging to kind of recount these stories of Lauren and document the grieving process and everything you and your husband went through? To some, perhaps telling their story would be cathartic. I can imagine that for Prince Harry, for example, very cathartic. But no, it wasn't. And that's because I am very good, as you can tell by my not seeing Lauren and Colin, I'm very good at putting things behind a door or in a drawer until I have to open them. Like when you and I are done this conversation, I'm probably going to just sit down and feel like I've been um, you know, I've just landed an airplane on short of an engine because 
uh, I can do this right now and talk about her and talk about us without getting emotional because I am I can just take it to that next level. But in writing about it, you dig into the deepest stuff. And in, in being a good writer, hopefully, you make them feel the story. You you walk them through the experience. You're not telling a story. You're making the listener or reader part of the story. And so there were parts about Lauren's uh, death and the drug uh, interaction she had that my husband dealt with, the uh, the breastfeeding guru, and dealt with Health Canada and all of these different departments because I couldn't. I couldn't face what might have caused her death without just dissolving into fury. And I couldn't afford anger in my healing process. So in this way, we went back through things. Rob did that part of the book. Uh, I passed that off to him so I wouldn't have to. When we talked about the morning that she died and finding out about it in a hotel lobby in Jamaica because I was about to do a radio show, I didn't remember what had happened. And I had to ask Rob, what did I say? What happened? What did you say? All those things that we really would rather not remember, but for the book, we had to do it. So it was a little bit like digging into the metaphorical grave, because she was cremated, but digging into a grave every time that we went there. Yeah, it was painful to write, but handled in a way that I hope is not painful to read, if that makes any sense at all. Well, that actually segues very well into my next question. And bearing in mind that you seem to have the ability to compartmentalize, I wanted to ask you something. Obviously, losing Mm -hmm. a loved one is, is something that brings human beings to the lowest they can possibly feel. But do you think that there is positives to be found in the story because where why I ask that is from my perspective it's my belief that the creation of this book has undoubtedly helped countless people and you know it's helped people work through their grief so is there any relief from knowing that your awful experience could potentially help someone in the future oh hell yes that's the only reason to go through something like this in my opinion is to somehow help someone else to navigate it Um, because I was given this gift of a platform, of a microphone, of an ability to communicate, that if I didn't use it to somehow help other people to get through this, then what was it all for, Phil? What on earth was it all for? We could look at it as saying, well, it was so that you could have a grandson. Well, yes, but that can't be it. There has to be a higher purpose. And I will tell you without a word of a lie or bragging that I still on a weekly or semi-weekly basis, get an email from someone or a post on my Facebook page or even on Twitter from someone who was touched by the book and who learned something, if not about themselves or how to go on, because there really is no roadmap, no matter what Dr. You know Kubler-Ross said, those were just guidelines. It's not a roadmap or a GPS, the five stages, but just a way to to know that you will get through the other side. You will get through. You will, you'll never get over. And I keep saying this, you will get through. Part of this journey has been putting my head down and saying, okay, what do I do with this? And it's kind of like uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is an amazing little book for anybody. It's like, okay, this happened. What are you going to do with it? Because the only real choice, the only real freedom that humans have is the freedom of choice. And that is you can choose what to do with it. And that's what I chose. It's been such a gift that I, I, I wish to God I'd never had a reason to write this book. But because I did, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity and to and the people like you will keep talking with me about it, too. And th- my publisher told me this. she said this book will be around for a long time. 
and uh, I hope that it will. Now, Aaron, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you just one more thing and then give you an opportunity to kind of promote your book and everything else you got going on in your life. What is something that you've learned throughout the mourning process that you hope to instill in others? Oh, gosh. Well, probably the language of loss. I think of it all boiled down to the things we've talked about today. It would be, you know, the at leasts and and what to say or when not to say stuff. We would love, and I'm talking about me here, but there have got to be other people in the same boat. When you mention our loved one's name, I was sitting at a table at an event and she said, you know, I used to teach in the same school that Lauren went to elementary school. And she said, and she used to bring in something to the office every day that was part of her duties and just told me about the impression that Lauren made on her. And she said, and I didn't know whether to tell you or not. And I said, oh my God, that's a piece of her, a little glimmer of her that I didn't know. And when you do that for someone, it's a flicker of light just for a little bit. And it means so much. It really does. And just to let the person know that you're thinking of them, it means so much, Phil, that connection that we need. What a brilliant point to end on. Um, Aaron. if people want to get to know a little bit more about yourself or find your book, where can they go? Uh, is there websites, what have you? Where can people go to dig into Aaron Davis a little bit more? Ah, uh, Thanks for asking. It's super easy. AaronDavis.com. E-R-I-N-D-A-B-I-S.com. There you'll find my weekly blog. I also do a video journal. I do two podcasts <laughs> and um, the book, Morning Has Broken, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, is available wherever you get the best books or you can order it through Amazon or Indigo or any place like that. There's hardcover and softcover and an audio version as well. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your candor and, and your openness. Aaron, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And again, gong hei fat choy for those who are celebrating Lunar New Year, Year of the Rabbit. And uh, I don't know what it means for me, but we're just going to put our heads down and keep going one day at a time. How's that sound? Sounds perfect. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.